Well, hello, and uh, thank you, Simon and Caroline, for that provocation about how we enter the harvest and connect with people that don't yet know Christ. And I'd really add my encouragement for all of us to be praying and considering what that looks like for us in this season. It's something that I am uh, also doing. And it really reminds me of the first time as a young man, God provoked me that I should be sharing my faith with those that don't yet know Christ. And I was still at school. I was probably 14 years old and I was very shy at school. And to my knowledge, up to that point, I'd never shared my faith with anybody. But I had this growing conviction on the inside that I had to share the love of God with my friends. But I didn't quite know how to break the ice. And so I remember God gave me this divinely inspired strategy at the time, which was to buy a luminous green rucksack and to write Bible verses and Christian slogans on it with a marker pen and then to walk into school. And so I remember doing that. And I know it's a bit cheesy. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but that's what I did. And I remember walking into school for the first day with that new backpack with all of its Christian slogans on. And I tell you what, it certainly broke the ice. I had conversation after conversation from that point on, and it just did something in my spirit where I realized this is fun. This is an adventure. This is what I was born to do. And it was a great privilege to see people come to faith in Christ while I was at school uh, because of just small steps of obedience like that to enter the harvest. So I'd encourage you to give your all in this season to praying about how you connect to those that don't know Christ. And so today we're turning to the Bible. We're in Matthew chapter five, and we are continuing our series called Beautiful Attitudes, looking at the Beatitudes, a sermon series given by Jesus over 2000 years ago on uh, uh, the Mount of Beatitudes in Galilee to an on-watching crowd of people from all sorts of different nations and backgrounds and religions, both those in Israel, but also those from the surrounding nations who had come to hear this penniless preacher, Jesus, talk about what God and his kingdom really looked like. And Jesus had a growing following because of the miracles that were following him wherever he went. And here in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, he begins to teach some revolutionary messages about what God actually looks like and what it means for his followers. And his messages on, on, on this occasion would have been so revolutionary and countercultural to the finely tuned religious ears of those who were listening to him on the mountainside. And, you know, he would say radical things like actually instead of the rich getting richer and having the power. Actually, it's the poor in spirit who are going to inherit the kingdom of God. You know, instead of the the comfortable finding peace, it's the mourning who are going to find comfort. You know, instead of the powerful inheriting the earth, it's the meek that are going to inherit the earth. I mean, this was totally revolutionary. And Jesus' words are just as revolutionary today as he speaks into our 21st century westernized cultural mindset. You know, our over-entitled mindset, our penchant to, to consume more and more and more, yet never quite be satisfied. Our modern addiction to the spectacular. You know, we want 15 seconds of TikTok to entertain us and then scroll through to the next thing. We've got an addiction to that kind of stuff. You know, our mixed up sexual ethics, our greed, our selfishness, all of this melting pot of stuff that we see around us and in our own lives. Jesus' words challenge every single one of us 
no matter what issue we might be battling right now. Jesus' message was revolutionary. And so today we are focusing on on Matthew 5 verse 6 where Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed, happy, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So let's look at that together. Firstly, let's start with this long, slightly antiquated word, righteousness. And talk about a vision for kingdom righteousness as Jesus defined it. And when Jesus is talking about righteousness and God's righteousness, he's really, when you boil it down, he's talking about God's right way of doing things. God's right way of seeing things. That God has a plan to put both our hearts and the world to rights. His righteousness, his perfect way of the world operating as it should in its blessed form. And so here we are talking about God's standard of rightness, his righteousness. And one theologian, Dr. Derwin Gray, says this. He says, how do we know something is unjust unless we believe there is a standard of justice? Why do we get angry and hurt by suffering unless we know it shouldn't be that way? How do we know a line is crooked unless there is a straight line to compare it to? If we long for goodness, beauty and justice, there must be one who created these things. In other words, there is a standard of righteousness, a divine standard of righteousness, a compass that is the perfect way of doing things, God's way. A creator who has a perfect standard. And the moment that we start to get lost in a world of kind of relativism and self-determination, and if it's right for you, it's right for you, but if it's wrong for you, it's wrong for you, you know, you get to determine what truth is. We are living in this crazy environment called the post-truth world, where you and I get to determine what truth is, what's crooked and what's straight. But I tell you where that ends up, that kind of thinking ultimately ends up in disorder and chaos. There has to be a creator, a standard, a righteous judge who says this is right and this is wrong. This is just and this is unjust. This is pure and this is impure. This is loving and this is unloving. There has to be a creator who sets that standard and that creator is God in Jesus Christ. God's righteousness. You know, I remember my kids were very young. They used to love coming shopping with dad because I was a pushover at the shops. You know, I would go to the shops with no shopping list, no set budget in mind, and I rarely look at the prices on things that I buy, which usually gets me in trouble. And so my kids would love coming to the shops with me because, you know, we'd come back with all sorts of things that, you know, we just weren't intending to get. But with Carol, she was very different. She has a shopping list. She knows what's in the household budget. She knows what needs replacing in the cupboards. There's a plan. And so the plan is good. The plan keeps us on track. And so it is with God. God's righteousness. He has a plan. And his plan is best. He has a demarcation that helps us to live life right. As Moses declared in Deuteronomy, he is a God of faithfulness. His ways are perfect and all his ways are are just that's God he is the plumb line and we find God's plumb line for righteousness in the word of God 
So that's the first thing about righteousness. It's God's standard. The, the second thing to say about righteousness is that it has both a private and a public dimension. Righteousness is both private and public. And that's very important to say because so often through history, these two kind of parts of righteousness have tended to get divided in the church and the people of God. Very often you've seen church movements grow that are either strong in personal holiness or strong in public justice, but not necessarily strong in both. But here when Jesus is saying, blessed are you and you hunger and thirst for righteousness, he is talking about both God putting our hearts to right, but also putting the world around us to right. God's righteousness on the inside, but also God's righteousness on the outside. One leads to the other. There should not be this separation between the two. And tragically, as I've said, so often in history, we've seen a separation of those two, where sometimes you get churches that are very strong at preaching a gospel of salvation and going after uh, personal souls, getting right with God and living lives holy unto God, dedicated to God, very much focused on getting people right with God. And that's brilliant. But sometimes perhaps having blinkers on, which means that they don't then engage with the world around them and with the massive issues of social justice that there are all around us every day of poverty and injustice and greed and human suffering. Then also you see churches that are very strongly social justice oriented, where they're very engaged on the coalface of the world's problems, very exercised by issues of justice and poverty. And that is absolutely brilliant. But sometimes you see that that is done at the expense of the other. And there isn't also a same emphasis on personally walking holy before the Lord, of being people who are dedicated to the word of God, obeying his word, living lives of submission and worship and in community with others. And sadly, sometimes you see this lopsided church when actually God's idea with both of these things would sit together. Personal holiness and public justice together make up God's idea of righteousness. It's both. Jonathan Dodson says this, it's a long quote, but it's worth reading. He says, all of us are prone to replace God with our own vision of justice. This can tyrannize both social justice advocates and those who are indifferent to justice. The advocate can be so dominated by the God of justice that failure to achieve just policies, treatment and ends leads to self-destructive anger or despair. When enslaved to the God of justice, it's easy to judge those who disagree with us or those who are slow to grasp the gravity of the issue. This functional God leads to divisiveness and disunity. Alternatively, the person who insists on being treated fairly, personal justice, but doesn't seek to extend fair treatment to others, social justice, snubs those in real need. Failure to advocate for social justice is a failure to embrace the character of God. Moreover, it becomes oppressive to those who are in need of social righteousness. Writing off social justice is insensitive, demeaning and downright ungodly. The dual tyranny reveals the need for something more than our personal grasp of justice. 
That says it so well, that God is calling us to a kingdom vision of his righteousness, that it starts in our hearts, but it ends up in the public marketplace. God puts us to rights in order that the world can benefit from it. It's both. We're to have a hunger for both personal holiness and social public justice. And the truth is that our new identity as God's children, as his sons and daughters, the fact that we have been freed on the inside, given a new nature, that we have now been clothed with God's righteousness, that has to make a difference in the world around us. That has to cause us to be people that enter the harvest fields and meet the needs of those in pain and who are suffering injustice. It has to lead to freedom. And as we've often said, The reality that you're most aware of within you is the reality that you will always export around you. In other words, freedom first starts as an inside job, but it has to find an outlet in the world. That is righteousness. It's in the heart and it's in the marketplace. That's so critical. And of course, that's why the enemy through the years so often has stopped social justice permeating society by getting Christians to ignore their personal holiness and walk with God. So often you see this, sadly, as Christians kind of go off the rails and go off the boil in their faith and sometimes even leave their faith altogether. Those decisions often start with very small choices to ignore issues of personal holiness in our own lives. It starts with small choices and I've seen it time and time again. I would say there are five steps to kind of decline if you start to ignore the challenge to live personally, holy and righteously before God. You know, the, the first step you see is just small steps of moral compromise in your life. You know, those just small, often private choices that we make to disobey God. You know, whether it's, oh, I'm just going to quickly look at that thing on the internet or I'm going to build this friendship with someone who's not my marriage partner and I'm sure it'll be okay I'll just do it in secret it'll be fine or you know I'm going to stop engaging with my church family so much I'm just going to have the odd weekend off and not really engage after all I do quite well on my own just me Jesus and my allotment you know it's fine you know we make small choices along the way that can seem innocent but actually ultimately lead to something far more dangerous and step two would just be the withdrawal of the Holy Spirit. As we keep making those small choices to step away from God, actually we see the presence of the Holy Spirit lifts off our lives. We stop hearing his voice. So clearly we stop feeling his presence on our life. We stop feeling the anointing of God rest on us to accomplish tasks. The Spirit of God just withdraws because we have withdrawn from him. Step three, you see just this kind of ascendance to the flesh where small choices become lifestyle choices. You know, that small decision to make a friendship with someone who's not your marriage partner suddenly becomes a lifestyle. It becomes something that dominates your life. You know, that small choice to occasionally watch something that is not very wholesome becomes a lifestyle choice where every day you cannot help but look at those things. Small choices lead to lifestyle choices if you don't check them. Step four 
of decline is that we begin to conform to the world around us where actually our lives begin to look no different than anybody else in the culture around us whether they are a Christian or not you look at our lives we have the same value system about sexuality about money about relationships about organizations about the way we talk about other people about our attitude to gossip and our speech and all that kind of stuff suddenly we begin to merge with the world that once we were trying to love back to Christ we begin to look just like them and then tragically step five is you just see the enemy beginning to dominate where there is no witness in the world there is no power in in our message and actually we begin to create strongholds in the heart where the enemy begins to have a field day you just sadly see that happening all the time all that to say righteousness in the public space is connected to righteousness in the private space and so Jesus is saying, blessed are you, happy are you when you hunger and thirst for righteousness of both kinds, for you will be filled. And so let's just close on a note about hunger. Jesus says this kind of blessing, this kind of filling comes to those who hunger for righteousness. So hunger is not a neutral word. You know, he's not saying, you know, you'll be filled if you have a vague openness or just kind of uh, a kind of a mental assent to righteousness or a kind of a vague interest or you just dabble around the edges. No, no, he's saying you'll be filled when you hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's an active word, not a passive word. And the truth is that ultimately all of us are driven by our appetites. All of us are. At a very basic level, we are driven by our need for the basics. Food, water, shelter and safety. We're all driven by that. But we're also driven by appetites for other things. So, you know, how life has meaning. You know, how we have a sense of accomplishment, having meaningful human relationships in our life. We are driven by our needs, by our appetites. The question is, are we being driven by our appetite for righteousness and for God's kingdom? And I tell you, friends, one of the things that God is doing in secret in our cave season during lockdown is that he is stirring again a passion and a radical hunger for the righteousness of God to fill our lives and to fill the earth. The pressure is, it's like a pressure cooker right now in me where God is forming something within us. That is a fresh hunger for God, not a lukewarmness, not an apathy, not a lethargy, but a, a, an all-consuming passion for Christ and his kingdom. Friends, that's what God is calling us back to. Uh, John Darby says this, he says, to be hungry is not enough. I must be really starving to know what's in God's heart towards me. When the prodigal son was hungry, he went to feed on the husks of the pigs. But when he was starving, he finally returned to his father. Do you get that? When he was starving, the prodigal son returned to the father. I tell you what, God is on a mission right now to deliver us from our lethargy and our lukewarmness and our self-reliance. And he has given us again a hunger for God's righteousness to fill the earth. And Jesus promises, when you get to that place, you will be filled. John Piper again says this about hunger. He says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the prime time dribble of triviality we drink in every night. 
for all the ill that Satan can do. When God describes what keeps us from the banqueting table of his love, it is a piece of land, a yoke of oxen and a wife, Luke 14. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognisable and almost incurable. Now, I wish John Piper had never said those words because they hit me round the face every time I read them because I recognise they are true in my life. It's so often the good things in our life that can become God things if they become the things that give us ultimate satisfaction and peace. Jesus here is challenging us and saying, listen, you were born for something greater, to hunger and thirst for God's righteousness in your lives and in culture around you. And if you learn to become starving, all-consumingly hungry for that, Jesus says you will be filled with something that can satisfy in a way that nothing else can. So how do we respond? Well, number one, I would encourage us to return to Jesus. Maybe pick up the Gospels again and just start reading about the life and the ministry and the sayings of Jesus. Just fall in love with Jesus. Allow your heart to fall in love with Christ again because that will begin to dislodge your heart and my heart from some of the other appetites that can begin to drive us. Learn to fall in love with Christ and just start by reading the Gospels again. The second thing you can do is just take a quick spiritual health check. Just ask yourself, how am I doing? How are my appetites? How hungry am I? What am I hungry for? How am I doing at the moment? Maybe do it with a friend, call them up, set up a Zoom call and just say, can we talk about our faith and how we're doing and how we can spur one another on? And then the third action that we can do from these words of Jesus is we can repent. I mean, I've got to be honest, doing this message, I've had to repent. I've had to change my way of thinking. I've had to realise in me some things that need changing. God, would you give me again a hunger for personal holiness? Give me again a passion for social justice. Let me not just care about one more than the other. God, give me a vision for kingdom righteousness. Maybe you, like me, need to repent and just say, God, will you renew my mind? Help me to hunger for the things that you love in the world. And so today, as you watch this, I just pray for you in Jesus' name that you would encounter again the Holy Spirit come upon you and stir your heart to seek after Christ and his kingdom. May your heart be disturbed by the sayings and the words of Jesus. And I pray that you in this season would encounter a hunger and thirst for him, unlike that which you've had in a very, very long time. Amen. God bless you.